Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Welcome to Medicine on Call, where it's all about living the solutions. I'm, I'm pride myself and the show on being an, uh, a teaching, a way to teach people about things that are going on in our society. It's not about emotion. It's about critical thinking. And the social media has become a real third rail in our, in our society. I think it's being used as a weapon. And I think people are really being driven by emotions. And I'm not sure a lot of the things that we're hearing are actually true. The next guest that I have on is somebody that I actually heard on on TV. I was watching um, a show, and I I heard him, and he just I had to stop and turn around and listen because he was speaking such with such clarity and on a topic that nobody ever speaks about, which is the power of social media. So I wanted to have uh, Professor Nicholas Giordano come on the show today so that he can give us some insight about something that affects all of us. He's a professor of political science and a political analyst. Um, he teaches at Suffolk County Community College and holds master's degrees in both Homeland Security Management and in political science. And somebody who is an analyst and somebody who speaks about this all the time. So, uh, Professor, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today because I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I think it's going to be very enlightening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I believe it will be. I think you dead on talking about education and how important this topic is. Let's start off first with, you know, your what it is for you on the front line, because we're seeing a lot of stuff on TV about the education system in the on the college level. It has completely changed from when I went to college, where students don't seem to want to learn. They just want to basically... I, Shut people down. Is that, a, is that a good way to speak about? It? If you don't agree with them, then you're the you're some sort of ist, sexist, racist, something to really end debate. What's it like for you on the front line as a professor? Are you seeing that? Well, I'm seeing two things. First, I'm saying the students just want to be told what to think. They don't want to think for themselves. They just want us to tell them what to think, and that's what they're going to regurgitate. The second thing I'm saying, and this is where it started to pique my interest with technology and social media, I started to notice a, a major change in student behavior about 2009, 2010. And every year it's gotten worse and worse. And every year student performance has gotten worse and worse. And so it used to be if I walk into a classroom, it's college, right? So the students, they're meeting each other, they're making friendships. Now I walk into a classroom and they're all just staring on their phones. Be, they'll be sitting in the dark. Nobody would think to turn on the light. They'll just sit on their phones and they're not even communicating with each other. And so that started to pique my interest in how the internet and technology and social media is impacting us. So when we look at it, the first thing I did was I started to take a measure of what the students' knowledge is on American government. Because I teach political science. American government is one of our core classes. And so the first day of class, what I've begun to do, and I started this uh, in 2010, I give them the Russian Constitution to read. I take out all the references to the Russian Federation. I replace it with the United States. I replace the word Duma with Congress. And I tell the students to read that 
write me two paragraphs on what they think, and then the next class we're going to discuss it for 45 minutes. The average number of students that will realize that they're not reading the United States Constitution are two. Wow. After 45 minutes of actually discussing it, I finally tell them the truth, that they didn't read the United States Constitution, that they know more about Russia than they do the United States. And the numbers just get worse and worse. So it's about two out of every 35 students will actually pass that test and will say it's not the United States Constitution that they're reading. And so where is this fundamental breakdown? And I explained to my students something's going on because, once again, harken back 50 years ago, a lot of people didn't even graduate high school. And yet they have more knowledge and know more about current events. They know more about American government. They know more about almost every subject area than students that have been going to school since they've been four or five years old. And so something's wrong. And we have to look at what has changed. What's changed in our lives and how is it changing our culture? And the one thing I keep going back to is the technology. You see the emergence of the internet, you see social media, and you're seeing negative aspects of human behavior on the increase and a decline in student performance levels. Now, when you look back at the, the first, uh, I guess the primary education, and the, do you see any correlation with the, uh, uh, what is it, uh, oh my gosh, I always want to say too big to fail, but I don't mean that. The core curriculum, <laughs> <laughs> but basically everything's like that now. But the core curriculum, when that came online, did you do you see? Because I remember thinking memorizing things and just you know studying to take a test was not going to you know enhance critical skills and critical thinking. Do you think there's a correlation between what you're seeing and and how these students have been uh, raised in terms of education? Yes, it is because when we look at it, so if we go back to once they started introducing technology into the classrooms, once they started to change the curriculums, um, we started to see changes. Now, I can't attribute it all to the Internet and social media. The dynamics of the family have changed. You know, if you come from a, a two-parent household, both parents are usually working. Come from a single parent household, that single parents working, and so by the time they get home and sit down and do homework with the child, it's a long day, mm -hmm. to say the least. But we do see that with technology, it's gotten worse, and part of the reason is because of all the distractions that exist. So I don't necessarily want to attribute it just to curriculum changes, because what's happened is students aren't reading. There was a Kaiser Family Foundation study back in 2012 that had a minute breakdown per day of what kids are doing. And it was, you know, they'd spend 300 minutes on the Internet, social media, and video gaming, and they'd spend 22 minutes a day reading. Wow. And so we're seeing a big shift. And that, that I think, is the biggest problem with technology is because, one, when we're reading on the Internet, we're not really reading. We're just perusing through the second problem is when we're reading a book, how many of these students have their cell phones right next to them? And how many of them are wondering who's updating their Facebook status, who's putting likes on whose page, who's texting them, who's emailing them? And so what happens is they just look at words on a page. They didn't really read anything. They didn't absorb any of the information. They looked at words on a page because subconsciously their mind was focused more on their phone that's sitting right next to them. And so I think curriculums may have played some role. I think poor teaching has played a role. I think 
family structure has played a role, but I think the biggest impact is certainly technology. There are a lot more distractions in today's day and age than there was when I was growing up. And I, I think that that is the driving force today with the students. They don't critically think. And when they do research something, all they do is take whatever the first thing, the first three sites that pop up, and that's where they take it. They don't know who's writing it. They don't know if the author is qualified. They just take that information they see, and they think just because it's online that it's true. That's pretty scary. I mean, we would have, back in the day, you would have to research and research and cite your source and footnote. I mean, this was, you know, we're worried about plagiarism. I have heard of all sorts of stories where people actually get their their uh, their English papers online, and there's actually a computer program that, that the professors can look at to see if they actually cheated that way. This is a whole new ball game from Cliff Notes, apparently. There is. Um, first of all, I'll tell you right now, and this is, for two of papers at the end of the semester. Um, students don't know how to internally cite anything anymore. They don't know how to do citations. And to me, it's insanity. Don't know what they're teaching at the high school levels. Also, they're good at regurgitating information. So if they're writing about a particular executive order or a particular law, they could explain the law, mm-hmm. but they can't analyze whether or not the law is working, whether or not there's any unintended consequences or whether it should be modified. And when you look at plagiarism, we are seeing a major increase in plagiarism. And to be honest, as a professor, you don't really need any software to determine whether a student's plagiarizing. You could tell almost immediately if it's plagiarizing. Because I know what the student's writing capabilities are, and it's not just that at community colleges, it's at colleges all across the country uh, that we're seeing it. And these people are going to graduate and go out into the workforce. I mean, it's kind of frightening, especially as in somebody who employs people. What do you expect, you know, your employees to be like? Are they going to really be able to take on new tasks, multitask, or are they really going to be in a position where they only want to do one thing and that's it? You know, you mentioned a little bit about the distractions. I think, well, I wonder, in your in your opinion, the things like ADHD and all these other medical diagnoses and medications that these kids are on, well, they're saying like most of the children are actually diagnosed with some sort of psychiatric condition by the time they get to college, which is actually really concerning that they're on all these meds. It is, and nobody really knows what the consequence of that's going to be. And one of the things I'll say is I'm actually less worried about the academic side than I am about the social side. I I am seeing more and more students that are just socially inept, don't know how to hold a conversation, don't understand common courtesy, don't understand how to interact with others. And to me, that's going to be the biggest problem when they graduate. I don't know how they're going to be able to make it in the real world. And that's when we're looking at it. And I, and I always tell people this. You know, you look at social media because that's almost at the heart of this. Nobody posts anything that's real. Mm-hmm. Everyone posts the happy moments. They take 15 pictures and they choose the best one. They take the picture with the family smiling. Everyone's happy in that picture. They're on vacation. 
And so what happens is when we go online and we go on social media, we look at everyone else's life and we assume it's perfect because we're looking at these pictures, we see it's perfect, we look at the videos that they post. Nobody's posting the video of the three-year-old that's throwing food on the wall and the eight-year-old that's instigating the three-year-old and the father screaming in the background telling his kids to knock it off and cut it out. Nobody posts that online the real world. And so it's almost as if nothing's real anymore. And these kids, this is the internet age now. You know, we have to recognize that a lot of my students, they were born in 2000. They got, you know, 2006 when the iPhone came out, you know, 2008, Facebook, Twitter going mainstream. And so their whole lives, they've been on this social media. And I think we're seeing the effects. We're seeing the effects of anxiety of more students that are mm -hmm. anxious than ever before, more depression. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, is this technology really worth the damage it's causing? And don't get me wrong, ADHD, it existed 50 years ago and it just went undiagnosed. I mean, you know, but those people were able to survive. They had common sense. They understood the street. They might not have had the academics, but they still were able to read the newspaper each and every day to gain a basic understanding of what's going on. How is it affecting their lives? Mm -hmm. And these students don't have that. And that's the concerning part. When we go online, everything is just, it's almost as if we're losing a piece of our humanity. So the things that make us great as human beings is our empathy, is our compassion, is love for one another. Mm -hmm. But what you see what the Internet's causing, it's causing jealousy and envy and depression. We're seeing cyberbullying, and it's a constant. You know, bullying 30 years ago, once the school day ended, the bullying usually ended as well. Mm -hmm. So there was a reprieve. Now, kids are bullying 24-7 on the Internet, on social media, and these kids are so young, their brains have not fully developed, and they don't know how to handle it. And so we're seeing an increase in suicides between the ages of 10 to 34. And, and it's a dramatic increase. We're, we're talking about a 30% increase. That's a big number. That's a huge number. And there's no, and then you add the drug use into that to try to make it better or to escape it. And it's a perfect storm, isn't it? Well, that's what's happening in the United States and most developed countries. We're not the only country that's facing it. I think all, you know, first world or developing nations are facing this same exact problem. And the question, the million dollar question is, how do we learn? Because we can't get rid of the technology. Technology is here to stay, and it's only going to increase. And so how do we learn how to use it responsibly? And see, that's the difficult part. Because when we look at an understanding human behavior, you know, when we look at the founding fathers, they wanted to understand human behavior. And they understood that human beings are flawed. And therefore, everything we create is going to be flawed. And the Internet's a really big indicator it proves them right. So we could create nuclear power, and nuclear power is wonderful, clean, efficient fuel source. At the same time, we create nuclear bombs that could slaughter millions of people. We create vehicles, allows us to get to and from locations in a relatively quick period of time, changes the way we live our lives. At the same time, car accidents, malfunctions, people die in the roadways. And then we create something called the Internet. It was supposed to give us more knowledge and wisdom than we've ever had. The new generations were going to be a lot smarter than the older generations. It was going to change everything. 
And yet, if you look at what the majority of the internet consists of, and there was a study done, can't recall it off the top of my head, but the majority of the internet is pornography and gambling. It speaks to two of the worst human vices that we have. Then you have useful, useless stuff, social media, uh, online shopping, you know, Maybe convenient to do online shopping, online banking, and everything, but we don't really necessarily need it in our lives. Mm-hmm. And they estimated that only about eight percent of the internet is actually useful information that's going to help us become better. That's all. That's very low. That's it. It's very low. Oh, my goodness. And that's the thing. We end up taking such a good creation, such a great innovation, and, and we know how to really screw it up at the same time. Man. On that note, let's, t- let's, let's take our first break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away? a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Welcome back to Medicine's Call. We're speaking with Professor Nicholas Giordano, Professor of Political Science at Suffolk County Community College. And before the break, we were talking about the power of the Internet, the fact that most of it is negative and wasting time, and only about 8%, you said, is actually useful. That's incredible. And people are spending hours upon hours. I don't care if they're the the young, the, the kids, the teens, even adults, I think you're right. This has changed society. We're less civil. We, it's, it's becoming more totalitarian and authoritarian, in my opinion, because there's no debate. How do we move from that negativity to lack of debate? Where does that, where did that step come from? I don't remember it being like that at first. You could be on Facebook. You can be on Patreon. Nobody was censoring you. How did we start down that path? Well, in hindsight, it was actually really easy to see this happening. Now, it's easy for me to say now because what has happened is we only seek out news that agrees with our opinion. Okay, it doesn't matter if you're old, if you're young, it makes no difference. We gravitate to the news sites that basically have the same opinion as we do politically and ideologically. And think about it. If we're constantly being told that our opinions are right, we can't possibly be wrong. So we seek out this information, we build networks around only people that agree with us, and then all of a sudden someone disagrees with us. 
And now we don't know how to handle that because everyone tells me I'm right from my social media pages to the news websites I'm going to visit. And these social media companies, they feed you the information that they know you're interested in. So if you're on the left and you like NBC or if you're on the right and you like Fox, well, they'll put news feeds that, you know, simply agree with your opinion. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden someone disagrees with you and they must be wrong because all these Internet sites told you that you were right. And so we can't even have a conversation anymore. And it's gotten to the point now where it's not even about conversation. If you disagree with me, well, you're just evil. And that's what we're contending with today. And how do you sit there and have a debate with someone that's evil? How do you negotiate or compromise with someone that's evil? And that's why we see more relationships ending today than we've ever seen before. Simply because of political ideology. It used to be that you keep politics out of their family life. Mm-hmm. And our friends. And even when you did speak politics, you were able to respectfully disagree. Those days, as of right now, are gone. It, and it happened so quickly. It happened in the last couple of years. It was like a switch went off. And I think people, well, maybe it's the way that people are thinking as well. You have one side who thinks that they're, they're righteous and they're dealing with evil people. And there's another side that is... Uh, Belief in civility and being um, neighborly. And I think that's led to this asymmetric uh, system that we're living in. If people will say, well, I'll, I'll just won't say anything because I don't want to offend anybody or stick my neck out, that actually emboldens the other side, doesn't it? It does. And also, you know, when you start marginalizing people, they're going to tend to be more quiet. They're not going to speak out. They're not going to speak up. And, you know, one of the things in the 2016 election that really astonished me. So, um, when Marco, Senator Marco Rubio started engaging with President Trump and he was holding a campaign rally and someone was holding up a sign that said, my boyfriend supported Trump. Now I'm single. And Marco Rubio pointed it out and he said, good for her. And I'm like, wait. So she ended a relationship simply because of who her boyfriend supported. That speaks more about her and her character than it does him. You know, and, and that's part of the problem. You know, we sit there and all we're going to do is name call. And that is the way to shut down debate. So if you say something that I disagree with, I'll find one of is to send you, as you said earlier, racist, misogynist, sexist. We'll find an is to put to it. And we're going to not only try and marginalize you and keep you quiet, we also are going to try and be punitive about it, too. We're going to try and get you punished. We're going to contact your employer and let your employer know. And we're going to see if we can get you fired. And that's led to what we see today in our political system. You know, one of the things we have to look at is this country is built on the Great Compromise, the Connecticut plan. The whole point of the system is that nothing gets done unless you compromise. You're never going to get your way 100%. And we've now created an environment where people actually have a real fear of saying their true opinions because they don't want to be ostracized for those opinions. I, you know, let's take a small break and, and come back and revisit that because I think it's really key. What, where do you draw the line of sticking your neck out or not? And let's just talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Medicine on Call.
health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Professor Giordano made a really good point before the break about consequences or the perceived consequences of being true to yourself, essentially. If I believe in something and I don't mind debating you, but I'm shut down because I have fear of losing my job, my home, my my loved ones, there's 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 got to be some way this pendulum has got to stop swinging in this direction and swing back. What do you think can be done to try to stop this? You know, this needs to stop because it's not going to, it's going to lead to violence and it's going to break the society. That's eventually, essentially how I see it. First of all, am I right about that? Do you think the society can hold together with this type of animosity? Those people actually do want to break this society mm-hmm. because if you look at what they're doing is they're trying to curb speech. This is a world that actually has a real freedom of speech. And freedom of speech is not just speech that you agree with. That's easy. Freedom of speech is having to sit there and hear things that you disagree with. It may be nasty. It may be hateful. It may be racist. But that's what freedom of speech really means. But if you can control speech, one or, you know, one side wants to do the other. They want the power. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they attack using certain terms. That's why they try and show component or everything's about gender or LGBTQ. And I tell my students in my class, there are no safe. Every single student I have at some point in the semester or another, because they need to be able to handle people disagreeing with them. They're not going to be able to walk into an and tell their boss they want a safe space <laughs> or, you know, not be able to speak up about if you're in a place of employment, you, you think that what the company's doing is taking a, a wrong business decision. Well, you shouldn't be afraid to speak up about that. Well, why are we afraid to speak out when it comes to things that affect our everyday lives like politics? And, and that's the crazy part that it's become so ideological out there that we are now fearful of political speaking. If you're one side over the other. That's true, and, and language has become a weapon. I mean, this whole argument that started with uh, the president saying he's a nationalist um, and that being turned into basically Nazi, you know, fascist, right-wing, and it's not the same thing. And never, never 
he never meant it that way. And patriotism and nationalism actually are, if you're not being cute about it, pretty much the same thing, don't you think? Yes, and as I stated before, and I always will state that nationalism is an important component to American success. Without nationalism, we're not going to have a country. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, nationalism isn't about the leader of a country. The leader's irrelevant. Presidents come and go. We've had good presidents and we've had bad presidents. And the United States has survived. We've survived difficult times going back to the Civil War, slavery, the Great Depression, Japanese, and we survived it. When we look at nationalism, it is the key thing that links us together, that binds us as a society, and motivates us to make our country a better place. And that, to me, is the most important element that we need, because we can't get factionalized like we're getting, uh, where we retreat to our factional corners, because that's going to result in tribalism. And we see tribalism. We know what it looks like. Just look at Syria, look at Libya, you look mm -hmm. at Afghanistan. They're all failed countries, and they've been failing for 3,000 years because of the warfare, the tribal warfare, that their tribes more point. Well, now we're living the same thing, where we're seeing tribes being built. Mm -hmm. And there's only two outcomes. Either the, the it's going to break down because sooner or later they're going to start turning on themselves. Okay, and we, we do see a little bit of this happening. So if you're talking about LGBTQ and... Muslims and, and you're putting blacks and African Americans into the column and Hispanics into the column. Well, sooner or later, the tribe begins to eat itself because there are major differences that exist. So it's actually a down tribe. At the same time, it could result in violence. And that's the concern everyone has. You know, I don't always agree with uh, President Trump's rhetoric, but he's 100% right that nationalism is important. The country, we have an obligation to each other before anything else, to make this country a better place. And we've done that. We've been successful. Mm -hmm. That's what led us to become the sole superpower of the world. We've done more good for humanity than any other nation, any other empire ever to exist. And yet you look at it today, and you look at how American history is taught, you look at the negative perception of the idea of a democratic civil society, the negative perception towards the idea of capitalism, and I'm not saying everything's perfect, but I have students that compare the United States to Nazis. And I sit there, and I'm like, do you even know what the Nazis did? Do you, do you even know that they were baking people alive in ovens, that they were experimenting on human beings? They were burying people alive. They starved people to death. You know, name me one thing that this president has done that's even remotely close. Name me one policy he's put in place that's authoritarian. And they can't name it, but it's what they heard on social media. It's what's exactly. Well, when you when you speak, so, let me ask you this: when you do speak the truth to them, what's their response? Do they say, "Hey, I need to get a book and read," or do they just say, put their fingers in the ear and say, "La la la"? I mean, what are they doing? Because I can understand, sort of, if you've never heard it, you don't know what the truth is. But once you're given the truth, are they willing to go and seek it out themselves, or no? You know, I, I think some of them are, are open. Some of them are open-minded. Some of them are open to new ideas. And, and I don't, I just want a conservative point of view. I'm going to take a liberal point of view. If you come with a liberal point of view, I'll take a conservative point of view. Mm -hmm. But I challenge them to be free thinkers, independent thinkers. And I tell my students, when it comes to the United States, I'm not going to sit there and hold punches. I'm not going to hide 
and run away from the fact that we did have slavery as a policy and segregation and Jim Crow. I'm not going to hide about treatment of Native Americans. I, I'm going to speak to the bad that the United States has done, but at the same time, I'm still going to say that we're the greatest nation ever to exist. Mm -hmm. Because what other nation teaches the bad that they've done so they don't repeat it in the future? That's a good point. Most nations will sanitize their history. They'll remove the bad elements of their history. We don't. We teach, as in fact, we teach more about the bad that we've done than the actual good we've done, obviously, because most students, I think uh, it was a USA Gov poll said that 49% of students, uh, younger generations, question the idea of a democracy. Over 50% don't like the idea of a, of capitalism. Now, I'm not saying I like unfettered capitalism, but it's certainly better than socialism and communism that exists out there. But these students prefer it. These students talk about democratic socialism. They don't even know what that is. Why? But they don't even know. And it's well, not they, capitalism. It's crony capitalism. That's the problem. You know, they don't know absolutely. the difference between the two. 100%. And even with democratic socialism, the reason they don't know what it is is because democratic socialism doesn't exist. <laughs> They'll always point to the, the Finland and the Swedens and the Norways and the Denmarks. And then I tell them, well, those are capitalist countries. They give their people a lot of social benefits and they tax their people high. But those are capitalist countries. The government doesn't control the means of production. Mm -hmm. And the government isn't the one putting the quota system out there. The government hasn't nationalized the industry. And they don't realize that. They're, they're shocked when I tell them that. Do they change their mindset after they learn this? I mean, I think they do. I, I, I think many of them do. You're doing a great service because it's amazing the brainwashing that's gone on. And it's, it's laziness. You know, I, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm seeing my colleagues go and just do their evidence-based medicine and not question, not think about anything because it's, you know, it's coming on from on high, uh, from on high and then it must be true. I don't believe that either. I'm a free thinker I'm in my profession, just like you are in yours. And there's a, some degree of intellectual laziness that you want to be spoon-fed something. But my thing is when it doesn't work in your favor, when you come out at the back end of it, when you're getting hurt by it, why do you keep doing the same thing? That, to me, is kind of strange. They don't have jobs when they graduate. Well, They're not really part of society necessarily. That's one of the reasons I think that they've been moving towards democratic socialism, right? Because they don't feel like they have a piece of the pie. Well, absolutely. And, and they're being told that the American dream doesn't exist for them, even mm. though it does. They work hard and they put in the effort, then exactly. it will exist for them. But they're told that it doesn't really exist for them, that, that the game is rigged against them, and it's not. The game will be rigged against us when we allow the current behavior of, of human beings in the United States, the citizens of the United States, as well as the government, to keep doing what it's doing. You know, right now, there's a lot of people out there that don't mind the wrongdoings of the of the FBI, of the Justice Department, in investigating Trump simply because they hate President Trump. Mm -hmm. And I remind my students, you know, once again, I don't care how they feel about President Trump, whether they like President Trump or whether they don't. But my biggest fear is when a bureaucracy becomes so ideological and they do this to one candidate and one president, they will do it again. And so if my students don't know the basic structure of government, why it was set up the way it does, what the institution serve as. They sit there and they say, give government more power, give the bureaucracy more power. 
Well, that's these are unelected, faceless officials who they held accountable by. At least we hold our elected representatives accountable, but the, nobody holds the bureaucracy accountable. And if you talk to these students, they're willing to give government more and more power. And it's because they failed to open a book. They've never read the Constitution. They've never read up on our history. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I mean, think about it logically. If you don't know about the country you're from, why would you fight and die for this country? Why would you sacrifice for this country if you don't really even know it? And that's why I say that, you know, we've become strangers that just live amongst each other. We're not parts of communities anymore. We're just a bunch of strangers in this day and age. That's a tragedy. Because, I mean, you're right. Whatever the glue is that holds us together, being an American, being having the same ideal of what makes you American is the key. And that's really being decimated, I think, from a legal standpoint as well as social. I mean, we're having to, like, let's just say the female circumcision is a perfect example of it. That's a completely foreign concept to the American, uh, the American identity. And it was now, you know, from a judicial standpoint, sanctioned. That is strange. I mean, it would be, it wouldn't be allowed in our country at any other point, but now we're seeing movement away from some standard norms that we, we all should live by. And I think if I move into a country, I want to adopt those norms, not make it my own. That's my mentality. I want to speak the language. I want to adopt what makes that country it's, it's, uh, you know, what makes it sovereign. That doesn't seem to go on here anymore. Well, no, because we've been told that we have to respect all the other cultures out there, that, that every culture is great. And while I'm not smashing cultures out there, all countries are great. We have to recognize that there's nothing wrong with saying that America is better than certain places. Mm-hmm. I mean, America is better than Saudi Arabia, we don't throw homosexuals off rooftops. We mm-hmm. we don't say that women need to have 13 witnesses after they're raped. We, we don't slaughter and torture journalists in, in a consulate. We could say we're better than China because we don't torture our pets. We don't beat our pets for hours on end just because it may give us good fortune. And the longer they survive, the better fortune we have. We're better than Russia because we could speak out against government and not have a fear of being thrown in prison. You know, when people say that we have to respect other cultures, no. Other cultures, when they come to the United States, they're supposed to go into a melting pot, and they keep parts of their culture, but they adopt the American tradition, the American values, the tenets of the American creed as part of their new traditions. But that's the day and age that we live in where we want to keep on breaking it down into factions and identity politics. And, I mean, listen. You you see polls every single election year. You know, white people uh, want to vote this way. Black people want to mm-hmm. vote this way. Hispanics vote this way. Muslims vote this way. Single moms vote this way. Married moms vote that way. NASCAR dads, soccer moms. I mean, we break us down on every little thing. And yeah. the reality is, if I'm black, if I'm white, if I'm Hispanic, if I'm a Muslim or Jew or Christian, well, at the end of the day, aren't we pretty much the same? Mm-hmm. You know, aren't we looking at our careers? Aren't we looking at our families, building relationships, maybe having children, maybe not? I mean, don't all human beings, once you shed most of the ideology that exists, aren't we pretty similar to each other? But now we're going to sit there and identify on every different subgroup, and we're going to assume that everyone's the same. 
I think we've taken, you know. I, I, I agree, and I think we're taking it one step further because we're supposed to, as an as a, a group, think a certain way. It's used as a battering ram or some sort of punishment if you think outside the box. You're a traitor to your race, your sex, and that's one another way that they use as ammunition to keep people in line. And on that note, let's take our last break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis with balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at PeachtreeENTCenter.com. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. George. Join me for Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Before the break, I think uh, Professor Giordano and I were really getting to the, I think, the root of part of the problem, this divide and conquer, right? This, what makes us separate as opposed to what makes us the same. You're right. We all want this, as human beings, we want the same thing, to live comfortably, be able to have our family and loved ones with us and, and die comfortably a long, healthy life. And not hurt people. You know, I don't, nobody gets up by hope in the morning to decide who I'm going to screw over today. People don't think that way in general. But I think the society is trying to ferment that. You know, if I have something, I took it from you. And the white male, white men are really under siege right now. And I wonder, you know, actually you're on the front line of this. When you're, when your classrooms, are the, are the white students feeling guilt of some sort? I mean, I don't understand why, but is that also happening? Because it seems to me it's open season to make people feel bad about themselves. Well, I think when you look at it and you hit on it, I think what we see going on is a certain type of social inerring being played here. Mm-hmm. That we're going to be, you know, blame the patriarchal structure. We're going to blame uh, whites and the male whites because they're the ones mostly responsible for the world of society. And I think that the those types of people that think like that, I think they actually miss the point. And I think it actually hurts them uh, more. You know, I, I do see some people that hear the word white privilege and they'll start, you know, they'll, they'll groan at that. And well, he had a wrong there. Okay, well, the Appalachian. Uh, predominantly white and it's the poorest place in the country. I'm sure they're wondering where their white privilege is. But when you're looking at it, see, here's the problem with where the left goes wrong. 
They try and do their social engineering, and they assume that all black people think alike. Mm -hmm. They assume all Hispanics think alike, and they assume that all whites must think alike as well. And that's certainly not true. If you look at President Trump, he received the larger share of the Hispanic vote than John McCain, uh, Senator McCain, or Governor Romney did. And the reason that he received the larger share of the Hispanic vote, nobody asked. Well, how did that happen? Well, no, when President Trump came down the escalator, he might have said something about Mexicans. Does a Brazilian care what he says about Mexicans or a Peruvian or someone that's from <laughs> Chile? And so we try and lump these people in groups. And I think that that's more racist than anything else. Why is it that since I'm white of European descent, I get to classify, classify myself as an Italian-American. But if you're from South America, you classify yourself as a Hispanic-American. Or, you know, if you're black, you must be from Africa. Well, no, there's not, not all black people come from Africa. Mm -mm. You know, and so why do we classify and lump all these people into the same category when they're different, but we're trying to socially engineer? And that's the problem. And that's the problem bringing it full circle with the social media giants and the internet giants. Think about how much power they have. Think about how much influence they have. These companies are more powerful than the government ever will be because they control what you see. And they have the power to destroy people's lives. Think about it. Imagine if Google or Comcast or, you know, Altice or any of the Time Warner, imagine they just started releasing people's search history, what that could do to people's lives. Imagine if these companies decide that they only want you to see one type of information, they're going to sit there and suppress other types of information. And, and so when we look at it, we kind of understand how we got to this point, how we got to this identity politics, how we got to this everything is about race and, and trying to get everyone to believe a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really is, to me, a major problem. And what I find truly astounding is how Congress has had no moral courage and even taking these companies to task, trying to find out what's going on. And it's because they're isolated. They're in their bubble. You know, if you look at members of Congress, most of them don't even know how social media works. More importantly, they're not interacting with the youth of today. I see it day in, day in, day out. I see it. I see the changes that have been dramatic. I'm sure as a doctor, you've seen the changes mm -hmm. that of people coming into the office and how they've changed dramatically and how our culture has changed dramatically. What What do you think we can do to, uh, you're doing everything, you're doing a, a great job at reversing it, but you're really on the front line. What can we do as individuals out there? Do we turn off social media? Do we start posting? How can we change this tide and change this uh, this paradigm shift back? You know, that's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> a really hard question. I, I think that, first of all, I think that one of the most important things that needs to be done is, is from a very early age, and I'm talking about kindergarten to first grade, I, I think that all children's uh, electronics must be just completely banned. Okay, so I gave an iPad to my 8-year-old son. I took it away from him. <laughs> Got rid of it just because I didn't like the way he, was, he turned into a zombie. Mm. And, and I, I just did not like that. So I, I think that we need to limit access to this technology for the youth in particular. 
at the same time as the kids begin to get older, we need to develop courses. You know, listen, I never did a binomial or trinomial once we got out of sequential math in high school. Never had to do that again. I think we need to start introducing courses that talk about how to use technology responsibly. I think that that is critical, that these the younger generations really tr- truly understand the power of this technology and how to use it in a responsible manner, mm-hmm. not the superficial manner that we're currently using it. Um, and I think that will change a lot. It's not going to solve all the problems, but it changes a lot. I think that we need to start going back to the community style. You know, it used to be that everyone knew who was on their block. They knew the neighbors. They interacted with each other. Now everyone's strangers on their block. I think we need to start building relationships again. I think that companies are a big part of the problem with the customer is always right model. I think that, you know, customers complain, they get what they want because the customer is always right. And I think that that's led to an entitlement almost. As superficial as it may sound, you know, you'll have someone screaming and yelling in a store about a coupon that expired six months ago that they didn't accept, but they'll end up accepting. So we're basically rewarding their behavior. So treat the customer service representatives, the salespeople in retail, treat them like dirt and you'll get your way. I think how we treat each other speaks volumes about the country we're becoming. Those are great ideas. In the last minute that we have left, how can people reach out to you um find out when you're going to appear and what show next. If you have any book that you've written, tell us a little bit about how we can contact you and learn more about well, what I you do. I do have a few studies that I'm working on, um, and I've been building out a blog since last summer. It's slated to go live in February of 2019. It's called PASReport.com. So they'll be able to get me through the PASReport.com. They could also reach out to me on LinkedIn or Suffolk Community College directory, uh, my email is listed there where they could email me. And I have a distribution list, so anytime I make an appearance, I could usually send out a blast email to everyone on that distribution list. Awesome. You know, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd love for you to come back so we can revisit any new stuff that comes on or anything that you want to, we have to know about. I would love to have you back as a guest. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I enjoyed much. it very much. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year. And I look forward to speaking with you again. You're listening to Medicine Thank Call. Thank you, Dr. George. Oh, you're welcome. And you can <laughs> follow me on Facebook, Twitter, um, download the podcast and follow and subscribe. And I hope everybody has a great day. Thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.